Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Welcome to the show. I am uh, extraordinarily excited to introduce you to Dr. Rod Hoffman, who is the president and CEO of Providence St. Joseph's Health, which is a Catholic not-for-profit health system that has served the Western United States for 160 years and includes probably one of the largest provider networks that I have come to know. It's 118,000 caregivers who serve in 51 hospitals, 829 clinics and hundreds of programs and services in the states of Alaska, California, Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. The health system also includes an education ministry, Providence High School in Burbank, California, and the University of Providence in Montana, and a supportive housing ministry. Under Rod's leadership, Providence St. Joseph's Health is transforming healthcare for the future through digital innovation, genomics, and scientific wellness, population health, whole person care, and outreach to the poor and vulnerable. In addition, mental health is a top priority for Providence St. Joseph Health, which contributes $100 million to establish an independent foundation focused on improving the mental health and wellness of communities. In 2017, Rod was named the second most influential person in healthcare by Modern Healthcare. Um, and again, this year, you were named on that list as well. He is a board member for the AHA, chair of the AHA Regional Policy Board 9, and immediate past chair of the Board of Trustees for the Catholic Health Association. Rod served as a clinical fellow in internal medicine at Harvard Medical School and Dartmouth Medical College, and he received his bachelor's degree and medical degree from Boston University. So you started out your career on the East Coast and headed out West, never to return. Occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you have to keep moving, right? <laughs> there, that's exactly right. And, and thankfully so for the folks that um, uh, are able to benefit from your leadership. So just by way of personal background, um, I was 
before the show started saying to Rod that I was incredibly impressed with your presentation at the AHA Leadership Summit uh, this past July. And I knew at that moment that I needed to interview you as part of our podcast series because this series is focused on health ecosystem leadership, which is something that you demonstrate um, beautifully. And I thought our listeners would want to learn from you, your story, um, to, to learn about how you actually learned how to do this collaborative, oftentimes incredibly difficult work with um, organizations that may not share the same goals and objectives or even mission as you do, um, but yet you're making an incredible difference in the lives of the populations that all of these um, organizations serve uh, throughout the many states that you're in. So I'm really excited to have you join us today. Well, thank you so much. Gosh, um, I hope I live up to that introduction, you know. You, you will, no, no doubt. So um, just uh, by way of introduction for our, our listeners, I did give a, you know, an overview of, of you and um, what your role is currently, but I'd like to hear from you if you could just describe uh, quickly what you see as the main focus of your role as CEO, and then what is it that is um, top of mind in terms of mission, vision, and values of the organization and how you lead? Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I always start out by saying, you know, when you're the CEO, you got to realize what you're trying to lead. So I always, when I'm on talking to other people, I, I always say name another 165-year-old company that's worth $25 billion that was started by a group of women. And it's a pretty impressive thing to think about in this day and age where we're thinking about women in leadership and leadership and how we develop a much more collective leadership that really reflects who we are. So I consider that a, a tremendous responsibility to continue what was started 165 years ago, but really makes a strong statement about leadership and who starts what and what's, what people are capable of. You know, for me, I have, you know, I have this incredible job to run. Uh, we take care of about 13 million people a year in the Western United States. We take care of people when they're at their most vulnerable and, you know, wow, you know, what a responsibility that is. And I think as a CEO, there's really, you know, there, there are two sets of threes that I think about. One is we really do take seriously the mission, vision, and values of the organization. And particularly for our mission, the part of our mission statement that really resonates is the fact that we take care of the poor and vulnerable. We take care of everyone that comes in where we are, and that's just part of our fabric. So of all a part of our mission statement, that's something that we keep front and center that we never forget no matter what we're doing. Our vision statement, which is health for a better world, demonstrates the fact that we're not just talking about health care, we're talking about health in its totality, which means worrying about those things that are the social determinants of health, but the whole person. You know, we talk a lot about the mind, body, soul, but it's also all of those things that go into keeping you healthy, not just taking care of you when you're sick. And then the concept of a better world is something that health doesn't stop at the borders of the United States or California. It's really a global concept about health. And particularly when, you know, just the recent reports on world health about uh, communicable diseases or about the health of children, about the health of the environment, those are all things that relate to us as a health organization. 
And then I'd say in terms of the values, and I keep those values, I don't recite the words, but it's all about your actions. So when you think about things like compassion or justice or integrity, which are some of the words in our value statement, I always ask myself, am I living up to those every day when I'm doing my work? CEOs only do three things. One, they communicate, communicate, communicate. So they communicate the mission. They communicate externally, internally. They really work on the communication dynamics of, uh, of, a, of an organization. The second thing they do is they set a strategy. And whether you have a strategy officer or not, if you're the CEO, you better, you're accountable for it. For really setting the direction for the board of where is the organization going. So that's a critical part of what you do. And then the third component, which is just as important as the first two, probably sometimes even more, is pick the right people. You're really in charge of bringing people into the organization that fit the values and the mission can execute on the strategy. And I always say, what I do is recruit great people and then I get out of their way and I let them do why they came to us. And that's why I think we've been phenomenally successful because we've been recruiting great people from all around the country. Many of them who have never been in healthcare before to help us redesign what we're doing. And uh, it's important for me to encourage them, but uh, not get in their way. And from a style standpoint, uh, you got to not just say the words serve leadership, you got to live it. And by living it, that means I'm successful when the people that I serve are successful. And that's everyone from our frontline people to our core leaders to our rest of our senior team. And I kind of look at my role as to make sure that they're successful and that happens. You follow that formula, you're always going to be successful. Mm. Now, I'm sure inevitably you've had um, some incredible quick wins in terms of talent. And then I'm sure as well, you've hired folks that maybe haven't worked out. Um, what is it that you look for? What are the top three qualities that you look for in the leaders that you hire into the system? The first thing that you have to look for, are they a fit for the mission and the values of the organization? I think before anything else, that has to be number one, that they really understand. Uh, Jeff Bezos was quoted, I think it was a great quote from Jeff Bezos when they asked him, who do you hire? And what he said was, I hire missionaries, not mercenaries. What he meant is that the people feel right here what we do every day and wake up doing it. Yeah, and whatever the compensation is or the stock price, but do they really focus in on what's important? So I'd say that's number one. The second is, um, it's like putting together an orchestra. Uh, you know, everyone plays different instruments, but the instruments have to come together. So I spend a lot of time thinking about fit with the rest of the people that are on the team or in the organization. Will they be a good fit for everyone else as they come in? And then thirdly, I hire people who obviously are experts in their areas. But I expect more than just that. I want that expert expertise, but I expect them to be leaders that add to the discussion as a whole. So those are three things that you gotta have to just even be considered. And if you stick by those, it's very rare that we make a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other characteristic is, 
I invest in the career of every person that we hire. And sometimes for that individual, a great job in another organization may be exactly what they need. And you have to be willing to say, I think this is the best thing for you. And my philosophy is if you worry about each of your people and what's best for them, the organization will do fine. Uh, but yeah. there's that personal investment that you got to worry about their careers every day uh, and making sure that when they've got the right opportunities that you can be their mentor, their colleague to make sure they're getting, getting the best. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I do have a, a set number of questions that I'd like to ask sure. you, but you bring up a really good point that I want to do a deeper dive on. Um, you've been practicing uh, the idea of, thinking uh, about the whole person, uh, which means that not only focusing on care delivery, but focusing on health and wellness and social determinants as a whole person. Uh, you've been innovative in that, in that field for many, many years. It's now gaining a lot of traction. So my question for you is you have leaders within your organization that were hired before that became the, um, really the, the, the focus of health of the health industry. So how do you retool? How do you take folks that are doing a great job, but they may be caught in a different error and bringing them into this new wave of whole person care? So I think we, you know, the other concept of, of, of great people that work for you, I graduated medical school 40 years ago and I'm learning every day. And I think what we look for to teach our people is, um, I always realize I know less than I should have known but it's that it's a process of being a continuing learning organization. So we have folks, we're all retooling ourselves. And that's what I say to a lot of our people. Don't feel okay with that. I mean, you're going to change, adapt, because that's the way the world is. 40 years ago, when I started in practice, at the total hip replacement hospital for two weeks. Today, we do it as an outpatient. It's required me to rethink what I have to do. So we encourage the folks that have been here for a long time to think about what's possible. And for some of them, it's really hard. And then they got to figure out what's best for them. You know, there's, you know, some people have said, slow down the change, do something else. Guess what? Things are going to continue to move. They're going to continue to move quickly. And people have to answer for themselves. Are they willing to change, adapt, learn? Or maybe not. Maybe they need to do something else. But, and both are okay. But I think that's how we've dealt with all the folks that have been here to kind of ask ourselves those questions. And I tell them, I don't feel bad. I ask those questions to myself every day. And it's a humbling experience to realize what you don't know and how you have to adapt. Great. I think that's a really wonderful perspective and a great response. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the industry because you have uh, uh, just a great historical perspective and then in terms of where you are today. So what, what do you envision as the ideal state, the ideal future state of the healthcare industry? Wow. wow. You have a couple of hours on that one. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're going through uh, probably the most tumultuous change in the healthcare that we ever have in the United States. And it's, it's tumultuous from a standpoint of the government, how we run it, scientific advancement, uh, and, and social needs. So it's the most exciting time and it's the most frightening time to be in healthcare. So everything is up for change. There are new partners coming into healthcare. The digital revolution is finally coming to healthcare. 
So we've gone through the digital revolution in in uh, retail and travel everywhere else. And guess what? It's coming to a clinic or a hospital near you. And I think our uh, patients and our consumers want that. They they do not want to fill out another piece of paper. And we're having to adapt and change to that new environment. There are also others. There's a lot of new entrants into the healthcare field, not from traditional places. They're coming in from technology. They're coming in from insurance. They're coming in from all over to help try to figure out where healthcare is going. So it's um, it's a difficult time to figure out who's your partner, who do you work with, how do you do it. So for us, when I get asked, well, what do we do? If we can keep the patient, the consumer at the center of everything we do and think about it that way, we'll come up with the right answers. But it's no longer an era, and I can say this as a physician, where things were built around me as a doctor. They're really built around the patient. They're built around the family. That's what's needed. And then how do we design it in such a way that it works for you and for me and for my family? And that's a revolution. That's a big change. And it's, uh, I think uh, it's not going to be the traditional way. Uh, bricks and mortar, doctor's offices, and hospitals aren't necessarily going to be where all the care is given. It may be given at home. It may be given in outpatient arenas and, and, and everything else in between. So that's going to require us to rethink the way we're designed and what we're doing. So mm-hmm. it's a gargantuan task that we're faced with. And I think hospitals and clinics and doctors and nurses are really going through an immense change. Mm-hmm. And I would also suggest that you've probably been working with partners that you never dreamed of five, ten years ago today. And in the future, there'll be other partners that you hadn't, haven't dreamed of either. Could you give us an example of uh, a recent partnership that is outside of the, the norm for a health system because of your focus on improving population health? What, what, what are the partners that you're, that you're working with today? So there's a whole range. So one is just, you know, the one that we've had a very, very good relationship is uh, uh, Walgreens, which is a drugstore. So we're partners together in delivering care together using some of their expertise on the pharmacy side with ours on the care delivery, how do we bring that together to a location that's closer to you? And I know when I'm going to get my flu shot, I'm probably going to go to one of my Walgreens on the way home from work today. But we've really forged a very close relationship. We're excited about that. On the technology side, we've got a list of technology companies that are helping us design the digital platform. The head of our uh, digital health, uh, Aaron Martin came from Amazon. Our CFO uh, came from Microsoft. Our head of marketing came from T-Mobile. So we put all those people together. It really helps us partner. Another partnership that came together, our health systems haven't always partnered well, even together amongst themselves. So Civica RX, a group of us came together and said, we have a crisis in generic drugs. They're too expensive. And there are shortages that are out there. The EpiPen is the great example for the listeners. So a group of health systems, including HCA, which is a big for-profit health system, Intermountain Health in Utah, Trinity Health, uh, SSM Health, and uh, Providence St. Joseph, along with some other nonprofits, said we're going to create a nonprofit that's going to produce generic drugs that are going to solve shortages 
and bring the prices down for consumers and for hospitals and everyone else. Wow, would that have ever happened before? And I think it's really exciting to see that because it's disrupting what's been the traditional pattern. And I think, you know, we've gotten great response from the public and from everyone else and said, we need more of this as we go forward. But those are just a few examples, but they're happening almost every day. We're seeing, we're seeing new things occurring. Yeah, and, and that's actually a great, a great uh, example to dive into because it requires somebody from amongst that group of very senior um, level professionals and uh, systems that are incredibly well known and, and have a majority of the market in their local areas to come together around a common purpose, right? You have HCA that has a for-profit motive. You've got other systems that are not for profit. You've got uh, folks that are coming in that don't necessarily have you know, much to do about providing health care per se, how do you find the common purpose? How do you envision that new type of future? Well, what we do is let's figure out what the priorities are. So pharmacy expense, drug expense has been on a lot of people's minds. It's a big, big issue that's out there. Specialty drugs, how do we deal with all of those things? How do we get medications to people that can't afford them? How do we make sure they're available? So what, what you start with first are defining what are the big problems, and then who are the people that should get together to do something about it? And what I was amazed with when I was on numerous conference calls at how all of these organizations that you described that are very different, they're geographically different, they're for-profit, they're not-for-profit, came together on a common cause. That's really exciting uh, to see. So what are some other areas? How about data? You know, this whole data issue about how do we do that? How about things that are like genomics, right? We, what we have to do is we all should reinvent it ourselves, but it's the power of the coalition or the collaborative to say, we can kind of work on this together. So that's kind of what gives me a lot of optimism and a lot of, you know, there could be a lot of peasants that people really are willing to kind of come together to work and solve some of these, what are seemingly tough problems and come together on it. And so that's what we're seeing. And it's kind of fun to, to work together. Our digital health group has had visits from about 70 to 80 health systems to understand what we're doing and how we can collaborate on that together. So those are great examples. And I, so that gives me some sense of optimism that, you know, the United States is always good at solving problems eventually. It takes a while, but we get there. And I think yeah. that's what's going to happen in healthcare. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, for, for all of the decades that I've been involved in the industry, it does feel as if we're coming back to the reasons why we chose this industry to be involved with it at the beginning, which is really about helping others. I mean, it's, it's the beauty of the industry that we're in. We have a great, uh, a great mission, vision, and value, values um, template to, to, to work off of, regardless of the organization that you're in. Exactly. Well, well exactly so. So there's a there's a significant area of need for communities in the American West, which is where your 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 big geographic reaches around mental health, the mental health crisis. Uh, could you talk about some ways that you've been addressing the crisis? Sure. So I think uh, if if you put it has to make everyone's top one, two, or three. So as as a problem, you know, mental health, which includes addictive disorders. When we look at the opioid crisis, which is a, an offspring of, of behavioral and mental health, then we're going to have over 50,000 Americans dying of drug overdoses. We have 30 to 40,000 Americans dying from suicide. We have, what, about seven or eight veterans committing suicide every day. 
this is a this is a major crisis. If this was a virus, we'd be we'd be calling the CDC to eradicate it. So, I think a lot of us are saying that we got a national crisis here. When we came together with St. Joseph Health, uh, we said instead of just saying we're a bigger health system, we said let's put the stake in the ground at least from our standpoint about something that we think is a natural crisis. That's why we committed. Now it's uh, I think over 130 million dollars to uh, uh, mental health and to organizing it. And our philosophy is that we think we solve the mental health problem one community at a time. And uh, it's almost too big to just solve as a country. But when we have met with different communities to look at what the gaps are in mental health and behavioral health, it's amazing how the mayor and the city managers and the police department really want to get together to solve it. And we think health and hospitals can be a catalyst to help them solve that issue. So we're having great progress in Orange County, California, really coming together around this issue. So we're starting to see, it's not that people don't have the will, they just need to say, what's, how do we get started and where do we go? Uh, and I think each community is a little bit different. Uh, we're really worried, one of the areas we're really worried about is mental health in children. Uh, some of our hospitals uh, don't have enough beds for folks in emotional crisis, particularly young people. So they end up staying in emergency rooms for literally weeks on end. Uh, and these are our children. So we think the children, the mental health issues are incredibly important that are out there. Uh, obviously, all of the areas around addictive disorders, both alcohol and opioids, is a national crisis that we need to be able to dig in. And then a lot of the severe mental health disorders contribute significantly to the homeless situation that we have, particularly in the Western United States. You know, when you look at San Francisco or uh, Seattle, Portland, San Diego, uh, a lot of it also has to do with getting mental health services. So we think this is an area that if there's one thing that we could help improve, it's going to make a significant difference in the health of the country. Yeah, and the, the, some of the uh, program elements that you're discussing are things that aren't necessarily reimbursed, right? Um, either through Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. So how do you incent your local leaders within the various uh, uh, states and cities that, you, that, that you're in um, to step forward with these collaborative solutions when there may not be budget to actually do the programming? So what I would say is that we're paying for it in some way, and we pay for it in communities, but also the health system pays for it. When my whole emergency room is full of patients that have nowhere to go with mental health disorders, I'm paying for this. And, uh, you know, the association between mental health and, you know, physical illness, the two are really interlocked, that almost 30 to 40 percent of people who have a, um, uh, a non-behavioral or mental health issue have one that's concomitant, so heart disease and mental health, and you name it, you know, they really fit together. When we've studied the medications of large employers around the country, the number one, two, or three medications are antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Yeah. So this isn't just a crisis in the homeless, this is not a crisis in someone else's house. These are our moms, our brothers, our family, our co-workers, that really need help. So I don't even think we can understand the magnitude of it. I think it's an employer issue that's out there. And so much of this is adding to the total cost of, of healthcare. 
so I think whether it's direct or indirect, we have to get at it. So in my role at the American Hospital Association or the Catholic Health Association, we've all talked about this as a key issue. We've got to advocate, advocate, advocate. We need to make sure Congress and the state legislatures are putting money towards mental health. Uh, so we think ultimately we're ending up paying for it. It may not be as direct as, uh, as that we can see, or you don't see the reimbursement, but ultimately pay for it anyway. So uh, that's why we think it's an area that we all have to step into. And uh, it's a collaborative effort. It's government, it's the police department, it's social services that are out there in the community that have to do a better job of tackling this problem. Yeah. Do, do you for, do you see your leaders within the institutions that make up Providence St. Joseph's Health as the conveners of the of the solutions of the collaborative solutions, or a participant too, um, or does it really depend on what the situation is and what that local area needs? So we want to be very very careful to make sure that we're respectful of all of the parties as we move forward. Social services and communities are doing a lot of good work, so. As we've gotten involved, we want to assure everyone that we're not coming in with all the answers and all the money, but we are coming in with some of the solutions and some of the ability to convene people. Because almost in every community that we're in, large or small, the hospital is really a center of where people think about it. It's respected. So if you go to Burbank, California, they love St. Joseph Hospital in Burbank. And, you know, the police work with our hospital, the fire department works with the hospital, the mayor does, the city manager. So it's a great way to kind of bring us all together and then start the discussion around how should we spend the resources? What do we need to do first? How should we do it? And we've had some really great experiences in Lubbock, Texas, where we are. The mayor is on uh, our board for our hospitals in Texas and is all in and uh, really kind of sees how to do it. I think. In this time, you know, sometimes things are best solved at the community level, not necessarily at the state level or at the federal level. And I think mental health is one of those we can get a better handle around when we start at the community level. So you're holding your local leaders of the 51 hospitals um, accountable to those local community needs assessments and making some progress on, on, on health and wellness in their communities. Absolutely. I think that's the okay. unit. That's what we all relate to regardless of where we live. I live in Seattle. I relate to my own community that I live in. Uh, I think it's a good way. You can get your hands around it. It's a, you're able to kind of figure that out. And it's not so overwhelming than trying to solve the problem for the whole country. Okay. Uh, well, uh, another question, and then we'll get to the last question of the day. But I, I know that you're doing some significant work in Guatemala, and I was hoping that you could share with our listeners the work that you're doing and, and why. Sure. So, you know, you know, vis-a-vis -vis our, our vision statement, Health for a Better World, we really believe that you learn a lot about health and healthcare care uh, outside of our borders of our own country. So we, uh, a number of years ago, really adopted a number of villages in central Guatemala, which are native uh, villages there, that have some of the highest rates of respiratory disease in children. Uh, Guatemala has the highest rate of cervical cancer in the world. That felt we could make a difference in those communities. We're going to learn about how to deliver care. So it's been a, a remarkable experience. We have partners on the ground, so we're there 24-7. So it's not one of these things where we come in and out of the country, and it's a sustained uh, uh, commitment. 
And the way I say we look at uh, central Guatemala the same way we look at Oregon or Washington State or Orange County, and we treat that healthcare with as much respect as we do those other communities. For our caregivers, it's a really rewarding experience to understand how much you can do with very little and that how much sometimes some of these things make a real difference in people's lives. And just because people are poor doesn't mean that they're not happy. And I think our folks, when they come back, think oftentimes receive more than they give from the experience, and it makes a real difference. I have to say they, they are then humbled by the, the, the riches of what we have to deliver care versus what they do in the central highlands of, of, of Guatemala. So for us, it's, an, it's a real important commitment. We've tried to concentrate our work there, so we're not trying to do try to boil the ocean and really see that we can make a difference. But I think it makes us a better health system, and I think we learn more about how to change the, the lives of communities as much in Guatemala as we do in Portland or Orange County. And how long has that program been going on? I think we're probably at least seven years, maybe even longer than that. Some of the work we're doing, like around respiratory illness, is that we've been installing stoves in uh, the folks' homes, which are oftentimes just sheds, to get the smoke outside of the uh, of the home, uh, so they don't have all the respiratory illnesses. Obviously, getting fresh water there is critically important solving some of the communicable diseases, but even just designing wheelchairs and crutches for people so they, um, they can have more mobility. So it's, um, it really has made a difference and we're there kind of to stay and uh, kind of continue that commitment. But I think it's at least seven years. That's amazing. And, and how many folks have been through the program from, from the organization? I would say in the hundreds of folks wow. from our organization. Wow. And the thing is, the waiting list is also hundreds to have the <laughs> opportunity to go down there. Um, and so that's kind of, it, it's a term short. We have a relationship with a medical school down in Guatemala City. We've had some of their medical students up to do rotations in the United States. I've had a couple of medical students stay at our house, which is interesting. And uh, mm -hmm. But it's really created this bicultural relationship that has really been fantastic. That's great. You are a leader that walks the talk, uh, which brings me to the final question, which is what do you want your legacy to be as a leader in the health industry? So a couple, you know, I would say one, we really want to change the focus to health and not just health care, you know, and we really wanted to be able to design health care that's built around the individual and consumer. And then I think as an organization, particularly as I look as the CEO, my senior team uh, is nine, nine women and five men. And uh, the whole issue of equity for women in healthcare and healthcare leadership is incredibly important to us at Providence St. Joseph. We're leaders in talking about human trafficking, about leadership uh, positions, CEOs that are women, and also the whole issue of diversity so that our leadership reflects who those who we serve. So I'm going to really feel good when I'm retired to see that work continuing and moving forward and to really be example for the country to, to, to go full circle, to fulfill that legacy of those women 165 years ago that started this organization that would say, 
if they came back now, okay, Rod, this is what we want. So I think it's my job to get that going and then get out of the way and let some other folks move this, uh, move this forward. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful legacy, and I am very appreciative of your time, as I'm sure our listeners will be. Anything else that you'd like to add before we conclude the call? No, it's great. I continue to be optimistic that we will fix health and health care. Uh, and all you have to do is just see, you know, ultimately all of us are affected in some way by health care. So it's got to be personal. It's got to be close. It's got to have a compassionate touch to it. Even if we use digital health, it still has to be compassionate and clear and direct. And there's no other field, better field to be in. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, I look forward to seeing you again soon in person. And yeah. I hope you have a wonderful remainder of your week. You too. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series, and of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.